you walk the property, you got to understand the clientele and the tenant that's going to live there. What do they need? What are the things that is going to set your property apart from your competition? Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Each week, we bring you all the cracking insight and investing advice to help you start successfully investing in the U.S. as an international investor. If you're new to the show, then welcome, welcome, welcome. I know you're going to get a lot of cracking information and actionable steps out of the show. And if you're a returning listener, you thank you for your loyalty and commitment, and you already know you're in the right place. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Guys, are you having a hard time finding and sourcing great single-family cash-flowing properties? I bet you're finding it hard to locate a good cash-flowing deal in your local market, right? Well, on this show, we are all about successful investing, and successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets with the right team. Here at Investing in the US Podcast, we have joined forces with that right team, which is Narada Real Estate. The team at Narada Real Estate specializes in finding great cash-flowing single-family properties across different markets within the United States. Their proven systems have provided sustained passive income and long-term wealth for their clients. Check out naradarealestate.com to find out more. That is N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. We are diving into the nuts and bolts of calculating cash flows and better understanding how to reposition a property. And the expert in the hot seat to give us all the insider information and straightforward advice is Tyler Sheaf. G'day, Tyler. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Reed. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, I'll let Tyler dive more into his background in a minute, but let me give you a bit of a brief introduction. Tyler has been involved in real estate since 2004 and has had a few career paths uh, over his life, including owning a trucking business. He worked as a local police officer and also served in the U.S. Army. Tyler started the Successful Cashflow Guys podcast and website where he enjoys helping busy professionals achieve their wealth building goals by showing them how to invest in real estate passively, which will far outperform the stock market. But Tyler, before we dive into all the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you tell us something that most people might not know about you unrelated to being a successful real estate entrepreneur? Something that people might not know about me. I've always wanted to be a, a motivational speaker. Wow. Okay. I'm sure you're on your path to achieving that because I've been checking out your website. It seems like you're getting a lot of great content out there to different people who are starting in the real estate game. Is that correct? So you're slowly starting to build towards that goal. That's correct. That's correct. That's something that I never really, it was a goal that I, it wasn't really a goal starting out. It was just something that I thought, boy, wouldn't it be cool to be up on stage and, and be motivating the masses? I'm a big believer in taking action. And, um, Fantastic. So, mate, with that being said, do you want to give us a little bit more about your background and where you've come from? I just mentioned that you had, you know, a couple of career paths before you have dived into the real estate game full time. Um, tell us how you got started and, and what was your why and motivating factor to invest, to start investing in real estate? Well, I was raised by a realtor, actually. My mom uh, has been in the business for about almost 40 years now. And uh, growing up as the son of a real estate agent, I was that, that kid that was uh, helping mom take suitcases of cash back in the old days uh, to the closing table. 
And uh, that's back when the multiple listing service was a printed book, looked like the phone book, and it was chained to the wall and all the agents had to go in to look at it. You could never take it anywhere. So it was an interesting time pre-technology. Right. Awesome. And so when you, how long have you been investing successfully in real estate? I know I mentioned that you have been involved since 2004. I did notice on your website that you were an agent for a, for a period of time. Are you still uh, a real estate agent right now? Correct. I am. I started back in, uh, I got my license originally back in 2000 just to work with my mother and it, it, I tripped over so much opportunity. I got into fixing and flipping back in the day. Did a couple hundred deals fixing and flipping. We would, we would do the Get them, get them cheap, rehab them, and uh, turn them right around. And in some cases, we were wholesaling, but back then, they w- wasn't really a term for what we were doing. Now, they call it wholesaling. But but the only thing that w- the part that we skipped was we didn't realize that we didn't have to actually buy it first before we could resell it. We were actually closing on all these properties and then reselling them. Fantastic. Just to give an idea. Right, right. And this is all back before the crash in 2008 because I know if listeners didn't already pick up that, Tyler, you're from or you live in Florida – so Florida got hit quite hard in the in the recession. So pre two thousand and eight, were you still fixing and flipping and wholesaling and all that sort of good stuff? We were. I had a pretty decent sized rental portfolio for not having any real experience. I was kind of on an accidental landlord. I, I bought a property, couldn't flip it, turned it into a rental, and then it just added into several more. I was fortunate enough to sell the, everything right before the crash. However, I didn't really learn, take the time to realize anything or learn anything about capital gains tax. So I paid most of that money to the IRS, unfortunately. Right. Interesting. Um, you're the second person on this show that has spoken about the success prior to 2008 in the, the Florida market um, and then getting out just right as the recession hits. But, you know, so, so well done to all you guys who were, you know, timed the market quite, quite well on the, on the upswing before it all crashed and we, people lost a lot of money. But Tyler, I wanted to get into, to, uh, into today's show and talking about the power of maximizing profits whilst forcing appreciation in, in a property. So let's start out at the beginning and, you know, that, that is involved in understanding how to maximize a property's income because, you know, a lot of people out there say, well, the property might be rented for a thousand bucks a month and that's it. But in most cases, that's not it and you can actually maximize the income in other ways. So do you want to walk us through what you like to look for when you start analyzing a property and how you can start maximizing the gross income? Well, once I realized that buying properties, I used to do it because I thought it was cool to be perfectly honest with you and, and profitable and, and I was at a very vanilla approach to the whole thing. And once I dove in a little deeper and I started realizing and I really grasped the concept of you make your money when you buy, I learned to look for problems, Reed. That was the key. I was looking for the problems. And, and I know the catchy phrase these days is value add opportunities. And sometimes those can be, you know, adding laundry rooms and turning two bedroom apartments into one bedroom apartments or the other way around, whichever. But we got a little more creative and started applying some of the negotiating skills that I've built over the years into negotiating after the fact. In other words, negotiating with vendors and whatnot to get better opportunities. And and most importantly, to get them to perform better. You know, we, we give to the our providers and they in turn give to us. So it's a, it's kind of a win-win. One of the ways that we've done that is uh, I learned from what I, I'm fortunate to have a really rock solid team. Uh, I invest in two markets myself. I invest here locally in the Tampa Bay market and I also invest in um, Memphis, Tennessee. And I found a great property management team up there in Memphis that I just, I can't begin to tell you how much I've learned from these folks. And one of the things that, that they do is uh, we build one. Like, say, for example, if we're going to rent a property for our, our, our goal rent for, a, let's say, a two-bedroom, one-bath is $900 a month just to throw a number out there. What we'll do is we'll, we'll structure the lease so the lease is written at $1,000 a month. And then we offer a $100 discount if they pay on time. 
And that has been huge as far as getting people to pay on time. I don't have late rent anymore. And here's the other side of the thing. When I do have late rent, immediately they owe me $1,000 instead of 900 So I've, I've pocketed 100 bucks. But the way the laws are structured in Florida and in Tennessee, not only do we get to keep the 100 we also get to charge the late fees. Now, the benefit there is, in some cases, when the people move out or they, they try to stiff us and whatnot, these things accrue and it, it allows us to create a bigger judgment, which helps offset some of our attorney's fees down the road. Now, obviously, that doesn't work in every single market. You check with your local market, get with your, your uh, property management team and your attorneys to structure a lease that makes sense where you can do that. But we found it, it's, it's more beneficial in getting people to do the right thing and, and motivating them because we, we want to treat our tenants. They're, they're our customers, really. That's our mindset. They're our, they are our true clients. So we want to pass those discounts on to them. And that's really interesting that you said that you – now, when you charge an extra 100 bucks on top of a $900 – rent is that do, do tenants look at that and say oh i'm not going to pay that's above market rent or or are you still below market rent for that particular property how does that work when you're structuring the mindset of getting a tenant into the property and filling that property if you know that you're charging a hundred dollars more a month well that's the beauty of it it's mindset because realistically the rent and we explain it this way the rent is, is 900 and we advertise it at 900 Here's the thing, and we advertise it that way because if we accept you as a tenant, we know you're the type of tenant that's going to pay on time or you're going to pay early. And because you're that type of tenant, because we've done your background check, we're going to incentivize you. We're going to motivate you to help yourself receive that discount. So the way the lease is structured is it's written at the $1,000. However, you're never going to pay that $1,000, Mr. Tenant, because I know that you're going to do the right thing and you're going to pay on time or early. And that creates a win-win scenario. It's a win for the tenant and it's a win for the management team. Right, right. So you've completely full disclosure to the tenant. They're, they know what they're getting themselves into. And they just, it, as you said, it's just, it's just a mindset. And I think it's a, a brilliant way of um, making sure that your tenants pay on time. So have you seen your success rate, you know, there's no late fees anymore? There's no late payments? I've only had one, to be honest with you, I've only had one tenant be late. And they were able to pay. I always give them a little grace period. If they do wind up being late, the late fees really don't kick in until the thir- the fourth day of the month. So I give them that little bit of grace period. And I do tell my tenants, they are my customers. Remember, I tell them, if you communicate with me or with property management in this case, and we know in advance we can make arrangements to work things out, the goal is not to collect extra late fees. Late fees are are not there as something that we use as a profit center necessarily. They're there to offset costs that are incurred by the tenant being late. And going that goes back right back to the mindset thing. We're not here to take advantage of people. We are here to help them be successful in uh, renting the property and, and, and enjoying their stay. That's the, that's our goal. That's sure, we want to be. Sure, sure. So, okay. So you've spoken about that you've you, you can tack on an extra hundred dollars to increase your income. What other things do you like to look for? Say, if you had a a quad, you know, a fourplex, and you were walking around the property and you're thinking, I can do this, I can do that. Just list for me the basic steps or income streams that you can generate from a property. And particularly for those people out there who are listening, who may not have a crazy ton of experience, you know, walking these types of properties. Well, you know, Reed, it all begins with understanding your customer. When you're walking that fourplex, and, and here's a good example, one of my fourplexes, I, you walk the property, you got to understand the clientele and the tenant that's going to live there. What do they need? What are the things that is going to set your property apart from your competition? Now, I've been, and my mindset is, as I said, and I'm going to say it again, they are my clients. They are my customers. I'm, I want to provide them with clean, safe, affordable housing when it matters most. So, perfect example, in the Tampa Bay market, storage, you know, department or fourplexes and duplexes and whatnot, they're 
they're very small. They're a couple of 800, 900 square foot. The thing that they lack is storage. They need additional storage. So one of the things that we will do is we will bring in a prefab storage building and set it on the lot. We paint it up real nice to match the building, secure it down, and then we allow the tenants to, for an additional fee if they want to, to rent that a portion of that storage room. We'll court look for a fourplex. We'll break it into four sections. And that's been that's been very, very the tenants just love that. They absolutely love that. And so, they don't want to leave. Right. And so you have a storage unit on site. What typically can you see for, you know, for just, let's talk about your market because you know your Tampa Bay market very well. On a $1,000 a month rent, what would a storage unit and how big is that space that would you, could you rent to the, to the tenants? I can give them an eight by eight space for about 75 bucks a month. Got it. Okay, that's good. That's yeah. a, that's it's it's all income at the end of the day. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it is, and if you um, you know you think about it, people are like, well, I don't want to shell out three thousand dollars for a storage shed. Well, they'll they'll lease them to you. There's all kinds of options available, and really, they can't get it any cheaper anywhere else. And then, of course, you add the convenience factor. They can walk out their door, walk to the back of the property, and there's their storage room. That says a lot. Right, right, right. And do you typically? I know we're diving off way into the weeds here, but when you analyze, um, so say if it is $3,000 for a storage unit to put on your lot, do you look at, okay, if, got, if, it's gonna get, if I'm going to get 75 bucks a month back from this storage unit, do you look at how long you can pay that storage unit off over a period of two or three years? And then if so, do you have like a, a maximum, say if it can pay me off in three years, it's worth me putting it in, or if it can pay me off in two years, it's worth putting in. Or what, what's your number that you feel comfortable uh, when you start outlaying costs uh, for property improvement, like adding a storage tenant, uh, sorry, storage facility. Three years is my strike point. If I can get it, if I can recoup my investment in three years, uh, it makes it well worth it. And so far, I've been very successful with that. Fantastic. Uh, and I've, I've heard you speak on some on your actually your show, Tyler, about you know there's other ways of increasing the income, and that is you know I heard and I think it's a brilliant one is is adding uh, washing machines or, or coin laundry. Do you have you had any success with that in your properties? Depending on the market, you know, in, in the in the B class uh, market, the what I call the target market or the Nordstrom market. So that type of client is not going to want to pump quarters into a, a coin laundry. That's that's not a value add for them. That's that's a turnoff. And that, again, goes back to understanding your client. Where in the C-class properties, that's what they're used to. They pump quarters in there. So depending on the type of property, like, for example, my property my property here in uh, Tarpon Springs in Florida is a B, almost an A-class property, and I provide the washers and dryers for an upcharge in the rent. People, they're, they're better off. They're happier paying 50 to Twenty-five to fifty dollars a month extra in the rent to have that capability. Keeping in mind, I was able to negotiate a deal with a local vendor where I was able to pick these machines up for three hundred dollars a piece, which turns into a huge profit center. Right, interesting. That's and what sort of typically do you, you you mentioned that you you got you got the two options: a coin laundry or the actually putting in the actual machines. There's a difference between, um, and again, it goes back to the class and the demographic of the client that you're serving, but whether or not they're actually in unit or they're in a laundry room on site somewhere. And I think they perform better that way. If you're, you know, on the, the B class stuff, they want them in their unit. They want that extra bit of convenience. They, do, they don't want to be at a laundromat because they interpret that as a chore. They have to drag their laundry and down the road or, or down the end of the property to do it. Where the C class tenant doesn't really mind it as much. Interesting, interesting stuff. And so we've covered, you know, storage units, um, washing machines, or in the two options based on a class C or a class B demographic. What else can you do to increase the income of a property? 
Well, again, as I said before, is I, I try to position my properties to be more advantageous or more attractive to people. So I don't really feel that I have any competition in the marketplaces that I'm in. And one of the ways I do that is I negotiate with the cable companies and it's very competitive, highly competitive out there. And I've been able to get, for example, Wi-Fi is one thing that I've been able to offer in basic cable in on my smaller building. I can negotiate great rates with them, with the cable companies. And then I pass that on. I'll either offer that as a benefit and I don't upcharge for that. It's not a separate charge, so to speak. It's just built into the rent, but it helps me get another $25, $50 a month, maybe even 75, depending on the property, additional rent. Because as you well know, I know you're out in California. You can spend $150 a month on cable alone. That's before you even get started on the internet. Yeah, it's expensive. It's silly expensive. And that's a great way. I think that is a brilliant way of and it, it creates that you're you're creating as you go back to what you said before a safe, clean, affordable space. And if they can, if the tenant can move in, they've got the washing machine, they've got a bit of storage, and they've got the Wi-Fi and, and cable hooked up. Why wouldn't I want to rent from you, Tyler? It sounds it sounds ideal, right? And then you and you have long term tenants, then which helps your bottom line and your business. Would that be correct? That's absolutely correct, and that's the goal: is that we don't once they're in, we want them to stay, and we make we make it easy for them to make that decision. They look elsewhere. Because, you know, as well as I do, the tenants will leave over $50. However, you can't put a number on that value. Well, if I go here, I'm not going to get cable. They don't have on-site storage and there's no laundry inside my unit. Well, if I stay at Tyler's place, he provides all that. At a cost. <laughs> sure, but it's, it's nominal. They don't think that far into it. It's like, well, it's $150 a month more, but, and they start self-justifying. Well, I would have to provide all these services myself. And then I start adding all the costs together. And then they think, well... I'm just not going to do that. Plus, it's inconvenient to move. I don't believe people really want to move if they don't have to. Sure. All right, mate. Well, so we've spoken about maximizing the the income. What about let's talk about how you optimize expenses because, you know, affecting the net operating income of a property really is powerful. And that's the whole reason we're talking to you today because you're the expert in how to, you know, tweak that NOI. So for those all those new people out there listening or those international investors who don't know multifamily investing very well or just any type of investing here in the United States, when I walk a property, when you walk a property, Tyler, what are you looking for in terms of maximizing those, or sorry, minimizing or optimizing the expenses that you spend on the property each month? Well, I look at, first of all, most important to me is my CapEx, what my capital expenditures to, to clarify. I'm looking at things like air conditioners and, and um, fixed operations, things that I'm going to have to, that are going to either nickel dime me to death later, or they're going to cause my tenants to upset with my tenants. So I do things a little differently than most investors. I'll go in and make a lot of these improvements in advance so that I don't have to do it later. And what I've found is it's a huge cost saving on my expenses because I'm not paying plumbers and electricians to come out at three o'clock in the morning to take care of, of things when the air conditioning breaks in Florida in the middle of August. You have to take care of that right away. And unfortunately, the air conditioning people, they know that and they're not afraid to charge you. Yeah, I've done situations where I've actually changed AC systems that were you know, 10 years old just because it made sense to change them and I don't have to worry about any breakdown later. Sure, sure, sure. And so that's a very interesting point that you raise and that is foreseeing that your expenditure could be uh, more later down the track because you may have an older system. So you might want to do that upfront expenditure when you first buy the property, um, which will affect your cash on cash. But then in terms of your NOI at the end of the year, it won't. It will hopefully help that. Correct. That's that's the whole reason that you do it. That you you, you foresee that that could be a problem. The HVAC or the hot water system or the um, the the electrical panel or whatever it might be. That's going to affect your uh, NOI at the end of the year. Correct. 
That is absolutely correct. And in the market that I'm here in, in the Tampa Bay area, I'm dealing with the, the B class, uh, in some cases, the A class tenant. These are things that they want to see. And again, going back to extra bit of value, reducing that competition, justifying that higher rent. You want to talk about affecting the bottom line. I get, just for example, I get my building here in Tarpon get, does performs about $300 per door higher than anything else in the area. And I'm in a great neighborhood. It's that extra step that, hey, Mr. Tenant, we just did a service upgrade. And like you said, we will go ahead and replace the air conditioning system so we can lower your utility costs. Because again, it is it is all about the customer. Mr. Customer, we have provided the extra insulation. We are taking steps to save you money because we care. Awesome. You have your looking at your capital expenditure at the beginning. You're looking at your HVAC system. Say if a tenant or the, the landlord is paying utilities, how do you go about trying to bill back those utilities to the tenant to reduce your operating expenditure? Well, as far as water goes, we do we, we take a little different approach on that. We'll use low-flow toilets, for example. Uh, that's a big benefit for us. We One of the very first things we do when we come into a new property is we change We'll change faucets and, and water connections, things like that, to try to eliminate leaks before they happen. Because not only do they waste water, they cause damage. And that, that damage, that gets expensive. That's that's uh, been a very good learning point for me up in Memphis, Tennessee. I've got two-story buildings over, over down in Memphis, and <laughs> it always seems like the second-floor ones are the ones that leak. <laughs> where, where does gravity take the water? Right, straight to the bottom one. <laughs> right. I'm hiring a plumber and a drywaller, which is no fun. Right, exactly. So we've talked a little bit about that you can bill back the tenants for the water. You've you've installed some low flow toilets, and are you installing these low flow toilets just to just to go back off on the, on that tangent? Um, when you first walk into the property, say if the toilet is operational already and, and fully functional, do you go and make the take that extra step straight away, or maybe you say to yourself, well, "I can do that in a year's time after the te- after this tenant moves out." Well, the short answer is it depends. Now, if the, if the usually when I buy, first of all, when I buy an asset, if we bring an asset online, it's usually empty or almost empty. So most of them are vacant and they're in pretty rough shape. And that's, that's what we pride ourselves on is repositioning assets that most people drive, keep driving right on by. Uh, that's what we've done in all of our properties thus far. We got uh, three buildings now in two states and we've done, they've all been what I call drive-by properties. You just drive by and you keep on driving. So in that case, we're not really disturbing a tenant, so to speak. And um, we've made arrangements with local used or recycled building materials companies that will actually come pick this stuff up. They pay us for them. So we'll sell the toilets to them for $35 a piece. And then we buy the new toilets for between 55 and 65 because we get volume discounts that we've negotiated. So the toilet only winds up costing us about $20. Wow. Okay. So you've actually made 15 bucks essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's incredible. That, uh, it, it, it works out very, very well. And again, it, it, the tenants walk in and especially the, the ladies, that bathroom is, is all brand new and even the toilet is new and the ladies just smile and they go, that's just great. I love that. <laughs> it's funny when I walk uh, into an apartment, if we're renting here in LA, my girlfriend goes straight to the shower and turns on the shower to t- check the water pressure. And I never thought to do that. And now that I'm a, I own some rental properties, I make sure that the water pressure is good because that, again, girls or ladies, ladies care about that sort of stuff. Otherwise, unlike us, us men, we don't. I don't. I didn't think to check the water pressure, but I love hot, good water pressure. But sometimes some some apartments don't have it. So, do you tamper or with the, with the water pressure at all when you when you buy a property, or does that all go back into the fact that it's vacant and you've had to come in and change the that HVAC and plumbing system? 
Well, some of the stuff that I've bought didn't even have plumbing. <laughs> I stole the plumbing. It was gone. <laughs> so but we test the water pressure at the curb. <laughs> right. Right, right. Like, oh, right. good, 35 pounds. When we run new piping because they stole everything, then, then this will be great. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. So you mentioned just before you, you said the word that some people look at me with a really blank face and say, Reed, what are you talking about? And that word was repositioning. So do you want to just define what it is? We've been, you know, we've been talking about essentially all the nuts and bolts of repositioning, but do you want to bring it all together and tie it up into a nice bow and present it to you know, the listeners out there to understand the word? If someone says repositioning to them, what are they saying? Well, it, basically how it works is you, got a, you have an asset, for example. Let's look at a little fourplex, and it's just either not performing at all or it's unperforming. It's not or, or underperforming, rather, and it's renting for below market rates, and it can do better. And we want to, part of what we do is we, we like to give back to the community, and we like to drive down the streets and see people enjoying nice places to live and whatnot. So the part of the repositioning is to take something that, used to blight the community or, or people would, you know, hold their hand up to their face and not try not to look at it when they drive by and make it beautiful again. It's about improving the community, providing that clean, safe, affordable housing because people deserve a good place to live. They deserve a nice place to live. Now, how nice it is depends on how much they're willing to pay for rent to live there. So our philosophy when we do, when we reposition a property is we take it from something that was ugly and unwanted and we turn it into something beautiful, something that people can take pride in. Tenants that take pride in their property when they're using that word again, reposition, the, the property performs better. So it makes it a better investment. And as we, as you well know, but I'll tell the listeners, when you take a property, a property's value, let's say if it's a hundred thousand dollar property right now and it's renting for it brings in $600 per door rent and you make it beautiful and you, you, get a, you attract a, a quality clientele, a quality tenant, and you can show solid books that the tenants have paid on time for several years, that you have maintained the building appropriately and it's not falling apart and you're not a slumlord. The value of that property can grow exponentially in a very short period of time in a matter of a few years. And that's my attraction to multifamily is the fact that I control the value of my building. I don't, it doesn't matter to me what the guy across town does in his 10plex. That does not matter to me whatsoever. What matters is how my building performs. So all the pressure's on me to perform for my tenants. And when I perform for my tenants, they perform for me. It's a win-win. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, and that's, you hit the nail on the head there, Tyler. That is exactly why I love multifamilies, that you, you're in control and you can control how much you improve the property, make it create curb appeal, create a more efficient property in terms of good toilets, good, clean, safe living for the tenants, all whilst increasing the rent, you're reducing operating expenses. That's then in turn forcing the appreciation in the property. Uh, and it's probably forcing other appreciation of other houses around you because you've taken a non-desirable location into something that is desirable. And that's just so powerful. And the fact that I want to, one last thing I want to touch on is the fact that the banks value cash flow, and if you're increasing that cash flow or that NOI, then that's going to you know increase the value of the property, and that's I think that's hugely hugely powerful. That a lot of international investors may not necessarily understand that you buy the whole property rather than the individual units. Say sometimes in other countries, like particularly like in Australia, so um, that's incredible. Do you have anything else to add to that? Well, yeah, we see a lot of this going on in our marketplace right now. But the problem is what, what the investors are doing and the mistakes that they're making is they're, they're doing a minimum amount of rehab on 
on the higher class properties, the B class properties. They're doing just enough to get tenants in there. And then they're under renting them because they're afraid of people leaving. Instead, if they would have spent an extra thousand dollars a door, let's say, to add a few extra amenities or maybe do a little better job on the landscaping, they're actually they're leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. And they, and they don't realize that. And it's very sad that, it's, boy, I wish, you know, we would have helped you through with that acquisition and, and repositioning. <laughs> you could have had another quarter million dollars in your pocket. But, yeah, it happens. Right. And I think that's, that's very, very powerful, too. The old saying, cut your nose off to spite your face. You're, oh, I don't want to spend the extra thousand bucks now because I'm, I'm afraid that I just don't have the money or I just don't want, to, don't want to spend it. I'm cheap or whatever. I want to just get it rented and get cash flowing. But understanding that if you're putting a little bit more TLC into the property, that can, on, on a multifamily, that can really, really have, as you said, an exponential growth or growth potential to the value of the property. And that's very, very powerful. So good advice there, mate. What other advice could you give to international investors looking at multifamily properties here in the United States, particularly like in the state like Florida? I know there's a lot of international money in Florida. What, 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 what sort of advice could you give? Well, for starters, people tend to think that there's, the deals are not found on the MLS. And I will say you are absolutely correct. Deals are not found on the MLS. Deals have to be made. That be built, and if when you get to the point where you can find a, a provider, a syndicator doing what you do or what I do, or in my case, an agent, take a chance to look at their, take an opportunity to look at their portfolio and look at what they've done. That they can see beyond what's the spreadsheet. You have to get beyond that spreadsheet, and who you're dealing with in this business, as you well know, really comes down to their creativity and their ability to take that extra step to go that extra mile with the investment, so they don't leave that money on the table. Interesting. I think that is that is really, really good, good advice because a lot of people out there when they come to me and say, Reid, I've got this property and it's worth X and I think I can rent it for, for Y. And they're not understanding the full value of the potential. They haven't walked the neighborhood. They haven't seen, they haven't touched and feel the local market. And I think that's really, really powerful, particularly whether you're investing down the street, you know, interstate or, you know, across the globe, you need to at some stage get to the the, the, the target market and understand what value you're going to add to the property to and then add to the street to then add to the neighborhood and that will in turn um, create a better buy and if you can then create the on the purchase side you know be, be knowledgeable in your tool belt of, of understanding how to purchase right because I love what you said at the beginning of the show you make money when you buy not when you sell I think that's very very powerful and a lot of people have got to take that that, that piece of advice away um, so so one last question I have for you is then how do you like to, when you're looking at a property that it's on the MLS and you think, oh, this isn't that great, um, how do you go about creating an opportunity that you're buying correctly and you're buying a cracking deal? It all comes down to communication, Reed. And one of the reasons why I renewed, I let my license lapse. I went to work for the government for a couple of years and let my license lapse and I renewed it a couple of years back. And one of the reasons I did that is I found it very difficult to work with a lot of the real estate agents not being licensed. They looked at me. You know, if they were the listing agent, they really didn't have time for me or they wouldn't return my calls. And and having my license now, I've taken steps to where I'm on the same level as them. So I can go sit at Starbucks, have a cup of coffee with a, with a listing agent, take a deal that on paper doesn't make sense initially. You see at the MLS, it's priced at a million dollars, but we both know on its best day, it's a 1.5 deal, 1.5 mil deal. I can sit down with that agent and explain to them and show them how I analyze deals, how I analyze opportunities. By doing that, I'm educating them. And when I educate them, I'm appealing to their senses and that I wind up being able to sit down directly with the decision maker. Of course, in the presence of the listing agent, I wouldn't want to be 
uh, unethical, but I could sit right down directly with the decision maker face to face, repeat the same procedure and get down to brass tacks. I do this for our clients, but I also do it on my own deals where I just sit down and we have a conversation. We get to the, the, the why, why are they selling? And how did things get to where they are now? Because obviously we're looking for, we're looking for opportunity. I don't pay attention to asking price. Asking price doesn't matter to us. You can ask $50 million. doesn't matter. We're going to sit down and have a conversation. We're going to develop a rapport. We're going to build a relationship. And that's how we structure deals. That's the best way to structure deals. Right. And I completely agree with you. And I think that real estate, people have got to understand it is a, it is a, a people's game sort of thing. You need to communicate. You need to understand their the, the seller's why, and they need to understand your why. And you can, you know, whether it be a multifamily property that they're asking too much for, and there's too much uh, uh, renovation that needs to be done on the upside. You can you can justify why you're offering a certain price, and then get to the nuts and bolts of why the person is trying to sell. And hopefully, it can be a win-win situation for for everyone. So, mate, with that being said, I always ask my uh, guests on the show to give me the top five investing tips for the US. Uh, You ready to get into it? I'm ready. Let's bring it. Mate, what's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I spend a lot of my time being a pig, Reed. Okay. You know what a pig is? No, but you can explain it to me. (laughs) That's a a professional information gatherer. Got it. I okay. ask lots of questions. And when I ask questions, I'm able to learn many, many things. Love it. I love that because a lot of people out there get to a point in their investing career and they think, oh, I've learned, I've, I know everything. And they, they, they put their blinkers on and that's your own worst enemy at that point. So a pig, uh, what was, what, can you say it again? What was it? Pig stands for professional information gatherer. I am a victim of being the person that thought he knew everything. And now that I've realized that I'm really not that smart and I really had, don't have no idea what anybody else is thinking, I just need to ask questions and then I will get the real answers. Fantastic, mate. I think that's a great piece of advice. Pig, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that more often. <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> uh, mate, what's the most influential tool in your real estate business and why? My ears. Reason being is, you know, early on, this was a struggle for me. Over time, I learned that simply by practicing what I call the 70-30 rule, I was far more successful in my dealings. You know, to me, that means I listen 70% of the time. And I ask questions 30% of the time. So bar none, my ears are it. Got it. Got it. No, I think you're, I can see this sort of uh, underlying theme here, listening, being an uh, information gatherer. You're, you're all about continuing to educate yourself. And I think that is really, really fantastic because that's what we're he- about here on this show is continuing to grow your financial IQ in real estate. It could be in anything, whatever industry you're in. So fantastic stuff. Mate, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? Well, at the moment, we're, we're retooling. We're having our website redone. The current site we had up was done by someone that comes to one of our workshops. And um, we just spent a bunch of money getting our website redone. And uh, we're really looking forward to that. And it's going to be more of a training site, a tutorial site to allow people to really get hands-on experience watching the videos, going through the motions and doing practice, similar to what we do in our workshops, but more of an interactive experience online. So we're really looking forward to that. Fantastic, and I've seen you being uh, going live a few times on Facebook recently. And I've uh, I gave it a crack the other night. I don't know if it came out as successful as yours, but um, I'm definitely learning from from some of the stuff I see you and a couple other people doing on Facebook with that live video stream. I think that's really, 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 really powerful to uh, to help, particularly when you're walking a property or at a networking event or whatever it might be. So, so well done. The most influential person in your career to date? Most influential person in my career, I would have to say, would be. 
this is going to sound corny, but it's a fact. Every single person that I have an opportunity to learn from is my most influential person. Every day I meet somebody new, I put myself out there to meet new people, to shake hands. I go to Starbucks, I have coffee, and I have I just have conversations with people, which I'm an introvert, believe it or not. It doesn't sound like I know people don't believe that about me, but I actually am an introvert. So for me to, to have a great conversation with people like yourself and people that are either in or out of the business about different topics and whatnot, they influence me. They empower me. I, when I learn something new, I feel empowered. I feel fresh and motivating. That's fantastic. And I, I think it goes back to making sure you have a passion for real estate. A lot of people try and get into real estate thinking they're going to make a ton of money, but they're not really that passionate about it. And it sounds like you're a very passionate man about the real estate investing game. Would that be correct? That's absolutely correct. Good stuff, mate. Hey, uh, last question is the best U.S. deal you've done to date? My best deal was probably my very first wholesale transaction. It was an absolute train wreck. I lost money. I was embarrassed, humiliated. And I think I made the seller really, really angry because I was unable to perform. And I will tell you that that one opportunity probably gave me more of an education and was more empowering helped to get for me to help get over my fears of failure than any other transaction that I've done to date. And I'm up to, I've, I've lost count on hundreds of transactions. That one was my most important. That's, uh, yeah, that's probably the most honest answer I've ever heard anyone give on this show because everyone talks about the, the $50,000 that they made or the $100,000, but no one ever really talks about the first failure. And I think that is really, really important. Fail fast. Uh, and you, you know, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be silly if you think that you're not going to fail in this game. Everyone does fail at some point. I've failed a few times and you've got to learn from those mistakes and pick yourself back up again. So great stuff, mate. I think that is, that's really, really, really good advice. Uh, the last question for you is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Best way to reach me is through my website, uh, cashflowguys.com. You can uh, reach me by telephone. If you go on the website there, you'll see the phone number on the website or you can, uh, if you have a question, send me a text message at 727. 727- Four one seven nine eight zero three, and of course I'm on Facebook. You'll see me all over Facebook under the name Cashflow Guys, and of course my name Tyler Chef. But uh, Cashflow Guys website is the best way to reach me. And I'd like to have you, you know, listeners take a listen to our show, and we're always looking for ideas. We're learning too. This is a whole process for us, the whole podcast thing. It's something new and stepping out of our comfort zone. So it's an evolving process. Guys out there listening, definitely check out Tyler's iTunes account and the, the cash flow guys huge hugely hugely informational based some great stuff on their show I, i'm a i'm a listener i'm a subscriber so um definitely go check it out all the show notes uh all the all the things that tyler has mentioned will be summarized in our show notes as well so just head to our website but tyler you provided some incredible information on how to, the power of understanding repositioning and to maximize the cash flow whilst forcing appreciation so thank you so much for jumping on the show today you've uh, enjoyed the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon mate thank you very much i appreciate it well, there you have it. Another great insight into better understanding the power of repositioning your property. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Tyler and any links we mentioned on today's show. As always, it goes up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Whilst you're there, you know, sign up for a newsletter so you can keep up to date with all the deals that we're working on right now. And also, we're, we're hosting some more events in downtown LA. If you are in the LA region, we just had a really awesome networking event the other week. We had like over 100 people there. So it's really growing all about, you know, real estate investing. Come down and meet some other people, uh, get some deals done and increase your network. 
Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on the show. Continue to grow your financial IQ. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group or Reed Goosens. And remember, if you do like this show and you want to give back, then jump on iTunes and give the show a five-star review. It's quick, it's easy, and it helps us grow the podcast reach across the globe so people can start successfully investing in the US. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.